good to gather on the Lord's Day with the saints and with God's people and to hear us singing together to one another and to the Lord. And now we want to continue in our worship as we turn to the preaching of the Word of God. And if you would turn with me to the book of Romans. The book of Romans, uh, excuse me, this morning we want to take a brief break from the Gospel of John, being as it is Reformation Sunday, and turn our attention to the doctrine of justification as is perhaps most clearly explained and laid out by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. And so I want us to read together two, two verses. We will consider more than that, but for now let us read chapter 1, verse 18, and chapter 5, verse 1. If you would turn to Romans 1. Verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. This is the Word of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now turn over to chapter 5 and let's read verse 1 together. Chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Those two things are what we want to consider this morning. Let's pray together and ask God to come and to be our help. Let's unite our hearts in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we come to You this morning eager to be fed again from Your Word. To be fed with truth. Your Word is truth. We pray, Father, that You would give us hearts this morning that rejoice in Your grace towards Your people in the Gospel. Father, we thank You for the Reformation. We thank You for how Your Spirit has never left Your true church on earth that You have always preserved for Yourself a remnant. And we thank You for how You were pleased through faithful men and women to recover the supremacy of the Word of God as our guide for eternal life and how we are to live a life pleasing to You. We pray that this morning we would rejoice afresh in one of the central doctrines that was recovered that we would rejoice in the glories of free justification by grace through faith in Christ. Father, we pray that if there be any here today who are still in bondage to their sins, perhaps in bondage to a false understanding of justification, in bondage in striving to make themselves and present themselves as good enough by their works, to be just. We pray that You would cause the chains to fall off. We pray that You would arrest them with Your Word, that all of our best deeds are like filthy rags, and that we need the perfect righteousness of Christ. Father, draw near to us, we pray. Glorify Yourself. We pray that as Your people, as we 
meditate on these things that ought to be familiar and yet things that we need to revisit again and again, we pray that You would encourage our faith, increase our our assurance. We pray that we would, with greater confidence, do battle against our sin and do battle against the enemy of our souls who so often accuses us We thank You that You have given Christ for us so that none of His charges may stick. We pray that we would look to Christ more wholeheartedly, more completely, more fully, more sincerely. We pray that You would draw near to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I want to, in light of Reformation Day, Uh, Reformation Sunday, I want to draw our attention again to what one of the things that was at the heart of the Protestant Reformation. The doctrine of justification by faith alone. And the Protestant Reformation was about many things. It was about more than justification. It was also about the recovery of the Scriptures as the supreme rule of the church. It was about the restoration of true biblical worship according to the Word of God But in the midst of all those other things, almost as a cornerstone that held the Reformation together was this prized jewel of how a sinner enters into a relationship of peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And contrary to the system of works and personal merit of the Roman church, in which it was taught that a sinner was justified as a process through his own cooperation with grace, the Reformers discovered in the Scriptures a much more glorious doctrine of justification. A much more Christ-centered justification. A much more comforting and assuring doctrine of justification. And the Reformation reminds us in our own day that justification by faith is a doctrine that the church must never begin to assume or take for granted. Precisely because it is a doctrine that is so contrary to the natural inclinations of fallen man. When the church fails to proclaim positively and clearly this heart of the biblical Gospel, and when the church fails to proclaim the true nature of grace, fallen man will inevitably follow his own imaginations and come up with his own doctrine of justification. Just like Rome did in the Reformers' day. And sadly, it's begun to happen in our own day. As we see Christian nominalism where droves of people claim to have a relationship with God through Christ, and yet they are wholly unacquainted with the Christ of the Bible and the Gospel that that Christ brings to sinners. And countless are trusting in their own morality to, jo- to justify them. Uh, countless more are trusting in their church attendance or even their church membership or their involvement in religion. And sadly, wolves in sheep's clothing reinforce those ideas by preaching sermons on how basically good people are and preaching sermons that are mostly about self-esteem and how we can better ourselves. And slowly but surely, they turn a glorious divine salvation into a form of self 
salvation. Well, brothers and sisters, I want to stir us up by way of reminder this morning of understanding and embracing in our own hearts so that we can share with others this glorious doctrine of justification by faith. I want to first open up with explaining our desperate need for justification. And then after that, I want us to open up several aspects of justification. So number one, our desperate need for justification. And it's vital that I start here this morning. I don't want to assume anything of my audience this morning. I don't want to assume that all of us have been raised in good, biblical, robust catechism and teaching all of our lives. And it is very likely that there are some of you here this morning who are sitting here and you don't have any sense of the urgency and the importance of this thing called justification. And it's my job as a preacher of the Gospel as much as I can to bring you face to face with the Word of God so that you can see its importance. Romans chapter 1.18 that we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Those words, just that simple first clause of verse 18, those words, wrath and unrighteousness, is why you need to care about justification. In Romans chapter 1, Paul is opening up the universal rebellion and sinfulness of man against God and the wrath of God that their sin provokes. Paul is not one who would agree with much of the psychology of our own day. Paul makes very clear from the beginning of Romans that all of us are not good. We are not neutral. We are not innocent. We are by nature unrighteous and objects of God's wrath. Notice he says that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. That includes the big sinner. That includes the little sinner, the the old sinner, the young sinner. That includes the one who sins flagrantly and openly and the one who sins simply in the privacy of his own thoughts. Children, I want to speak to you this morning. Children, I'm sure your mom and dad have drilled this into you. And it's a hard truth, but it is so important. Without Jesus Christ, children, are we righteous or unrighteous? We're unrighteous, right? Even in your young hearts, you guys know that. You know that you have thought and done and desired things that you know are wrong and unrighteous in God's sight. Like when you raise your voice in anger against the mom and dad that God gave you. Or when you tease your siblings or your friends to their hurt. Or when you have said things that are not according to truth. And God has given you that little voice in your head called your conscience that tells you, I know I've done something wrong. Right? And I feel dirty. I feel guilty. I feel ashamed. Just like Adam and Eve, our first parents felt when they sinned against God and they decided they wanted to hide from God. 
Why do we hide? Because we know we are unrighteous and have offended God who is holy and majestic and good. But we also know that we cannot hide. Because God, knowing all things, He sees my every thought. He knows my every word before it even leaves my tongue. He knows my desires and my deeds. That is the thing that drove Martin Luther nearly to insanity. Martin Luther was trained as a lawyer. He studied the law before entering the priesthood. And when he began to study God's law, he couldn't help but be plagued and tormented by how severely and how often he had violated God's standard of righteousness. And it caused him to tremble to die. It caused him to tremble at the thought of God bringing his sins into judgment. And he trembled when he read things like in Hebrews that says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And children, and not just children, adults, we should be tormented. We should be plagued by the thought of dying outside the safety of being in Christ. Because our record of sins, as long as God is holding them against us, they will certainly bring us down to hell. And it is into that dark and uncomfortable situation that free justification is music to the sinner's ears. What did Luther and the other reformers discover in the Word of God that had been so long buried and hidden from sinners? They discovered free justification by free grace through faith alone in Christ alone. They discovered, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism summarizes it, that justification is not a process by which me cooperating with the grace of God and becoming more righteous, I finally can hopefully achieve justification. They discovered that justification is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. And that's what I want to open up this morning as we've considered the need of justification. I want to open up the, justif- uh, the doctrine of justification under four headings, if you will. If it keeps you keep track with notes, four, four points, four headings. And I'm using the shorter catechism as, as kind of the main things we're hanging our thoughts on here. Number one, Justification is an act of the grace of God. Justification is an act of the grace of God. And I want to begin here because it's essential to begin here. One of the easiest mistakes and errors for the Christian to fall into is to confuse and conflate sanctification with justification. Okay? Both sanctification and justification are benefits that the, the, uh, the Christian receives from Christ, but they are distinct benefits. And in fact, one of the main reasons that Rome's doctrine of justification leads to bondage is precisely because they have conflated 
sanctification in with justification. justification. Rome teaches that justification is not an act, but rather a process in which God is actually by His grace transforming the sinner to become more and more righteous. And so in the Roman Catholic system of justification, your justification and becoming just is based on your actual personal transformation which God graciously works in you. The problem with that is that that is not how the Apostle Paul talks about justification. He talks about sanctification as a process, but he talks about justification as an act of God's free grace that is completed the moment the sinner trusts Christ. So if you're not there already, turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Paul writes, chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, past tense, we have, present tense, peace with God. Paul can say of himself and of the whole Roman church, having been justified by faith. Now Christian, when does faith happen? It happens at the very beginning of the Christian life. Having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. Not the process has been begun and we will one day have peace with God. But rather, justification is complete and as a result, I am in a relationship with peace with God. The moment the sinner believes in Christ, the guilt, this is what the Reformers discovered, the moment he or she trusts Christ, all of his guilt is imputed to Christ and all of Christ's righteousness is imputed to Him. It's an immediate change of status from which I go from being unrighteous in God's sight and under His condemnation to immediately being righteous in Christ and an heir of eternal life. And all of that because God now reckons me in Christ. And what's amazing is that Paul says that to them knowing full well that both he and they in their actual Christian experience, they still knew that they were very much sinners. Right? You, you read Romans. There's no indication that these saints had already been glorified. He will instruct them. He will correct them on things that they've been falling short in. And yet, none of that undermines the fact that He says, having been justified. And that's because, number two, our second thing, justification is a judicial sentence, not a moral transformation. Okay, Justification is a judicial sentence not a moral transformation. In other words, let me put it like this. Justification, when we're talking about justification, that does not describe the inner moral change God affects in us. Okay? Now, question. Does God actually change us morally through the Gospel? Yes. And that's sanctification. Justification describes a change in the legal standing of the justified person. And that's very important to understand. That 
my justification has nothing to do with my actually becoming righteous in my person. It has to do with a legal declaration that God makes at His heavenly tribunal in my behalf. So let me give you a couple texts for this. The first one is 2 Corinthians 5.21. If you're fast, you can turn there. Otherwise, we will be in Romans 4 shortly. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is a very significant text. And it's very well known. You probably have it memorized. For He, that is God the Father, made Him, God the Son, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now, there's a parallel in that verse, right? God made Christ to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now, let me ask you this. When it says that God made Christ to be sin, does that mean that Christ became actually in His person morally corrupt? Does that mean that at the cross, suddenly Christ actually Himself became sinful? No. What it means is Paul is describing a legal or forensic transaction. Christ didn't become sinful. God reckoned Christ as though He was sinful by legally imputing to Him our sin. And thus, the parallel with us becoming the righteousness of God in Him does not refer here to our actually becoming more and more holy. It refers to this legal transaction in which God now reckons us as though we have the righteousness of Christ. Now turn to Romans chapter 4, verse 5. Another very important text. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. If you're ever tempted to think that you know this whole Reformed Discovery, this whole idea that I can be legally declared just in the sight of God while still being sinful in my actual experience. If you're ever tempted to think that that just seems far-fetched, remember Romans 4, verse 4 and 5. Romans 4, verse 4. Paul says, Now to the one who works... We'll come back to this verse in a little bit. To the one who works, his wages are counted... Not as a gift, but as His due. And verse 5, And to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the what? The ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness. Now, I cannot emphasize enough the importance of that word ungodly. According to Paul, what kinds of people does God justify? I've already told you Rome's answer to that. According to them, God justifies the one who by various means is made righteous. But if that were the case, and Paul believed that, he would have said that God justifies the godly, not the ungodly. But here he's declaring those who are ungodly are the ones that God justifies. In fact, it's very very telling. Joseph Smith, I've mentioned this before on this text. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, 
was so scandalized by the idea that God would justify the ungodly that in his translation, he inserted a negation so that it says, God who does not justify the ungodly. Now, when leaders of cults begin to outright make texts say the opposite of what they say, that clues you in that you're probably dealing with something that's very central and very important. And the reason Joseph Smith wanted to change that is because this word ungodly, God justifies the ungodly, runs directly contrary to every man-centered religion. Why do, why do you think Paul has to again and again emphasize justification by faith apart from works? It's because by nature, men love to believe themselves capable of cleaning themselves up and believing themselves capable of doing something that would then make God my debtor so that He owes me eternal life. Men love to do verse 4 to God. They love to be their own saviors, but it is precisely that attitude that Paul says in chapter 3, the Gospel excludes. Christian, hear me at this point. God only and ever justifies the ungodly. He doesn't justify the one who comes to Him with His own works or presenting to Him His own supposed righteousness in order to be rewarded. He justifies those who have given up all hope in their own righteousness and hoping in their own works. And He justifies those who come to Him naked in order to be clothed by the perfect righteousness of Christ. And brothers and sisters, that is so practical to Christian living. We sing that hymn before the throne of God above. That second stanza. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Now, Christian, is there really guilt within? Yes. We really still sin. We really ought to still feel bad for those sins. And yet, what is the counsel the hymn gives? Upward I look and I see Him there who made an end to all my sin. What is that? That's the practical implications of living out of justification by faith. That though my sanctification ebbs and flows as a process, my justification never changes. That just because I sinned ten minutes ago, it doesn't mean that I'm going in and out in a relationship of peace or not peace with God. Because Christ is my justification. He is the just one. He is the one who was justified for me and He sits forever at the right hand of the Father. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the moment you believe, you are as justified as you will be 10,000 years from now. So that when we fail, and we will fail, we are not utterly cast off and cast into despair and wondering whether God is still for me, but rather, by faith we say what Luther said, when the devil comes to me and tells me, you are an unworthy sinner, 
worthy of death and hell, we can say to the devil, yes, and what of it? Because I have a Christ who has died for me. And that brings us to the third thing. Namely, I can have this judicial sentence given to me because it is based on the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. I can have this judicial sentence given to me because of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. One of the strongest Roman Catholic challenges to the Reformed doctrine was this. How can God be just and say someone is righteous when they're not actually made righteous? Right After all, do we not call judges who acquit the guilty unjust? And those who free the guilty unjust? And the Reformers, echoing Paul, answered this way. They replied, very importantly, that God is not just making up out of thin air a righteousness that doesn't exist. He's not just declaring me just without any basis for that, but rather, God can declare me to be just and Himself remain just because He is imputing to me the very righteousness of His own Son. In other words, the Reformers responded that our doctrine is not saying that God is just kind of in heaven cooking the books, so to speak, right? And just kind of plugging his nose as he declares us not guilty, but rather God in justification and justifying me a sinner is giving to me the very righteousness of Christ. He is gifting me a righteousness that is not mine properly speaking, but it is given to me by grace, and on that basis He pronounces me just. I'll give you, let me give you briefly a precise definition of imputation and then we'll unpack it together. Imputation is the act of God. There's two parts to it. Imputation is the act of God as sovereign judge whereby He won makes the guilt and legal responsibility of our sins really Christ's and He punishes them in Him. And the second aspect is God then makes the merit and legal rights of Christ's righteousness ours and then treats us as persons legally invested with all of those rights. Okay? So there's a twofold aspect to it. Uh, imp- imputation. Our sins imputed to Christ. Christ's righteousness imputed to us. And I want to show you a couple texts so that you can see it for yourself. Romans 4. This time, verses 7 and 8. Romans 4, verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count or impute his sin. Okay, you see that? So here you have the blessing of what we would call the non-imputation of my sin to my account. That's what Paul is saying. Blessed is the man whose sin is not imputed to him by God. And brothers and sisters, we could just pause there. Is that not among the greatest blessings in the Gospel? That 
My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And God does not count a single one of them to my account. Psalm 103, God has not dealt with us as our sins deserve. But that seems to raise a question for the justice of God, doesn't it? If God does not impute my sin to me and doesn't punish me for my sin, then where, where is the justice of God who cannot acquit the guilty? That's Romans chapter 3, verse 23, where Paul answers that. Turn there. One of the most tightly knit and most important paragraphs in Romans, beginning in verse 23 of chapter 3. Paul says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. So how are they justified? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then Paul unpacks that. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness. Now, that's the question, isn't it? How can God righteously pass over sins? Paul says Christ was put forward as a propitiation in order to demonstrate God's righteousness. Going on, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I hope you see His logic there. God can be both just and the one who justifies sinners for Jesus' sake because He has really given my sins and their guilt to Christ. And He has punished them in Christ. Justification is not just God sweeping sin under the rug. It is Him punishing them in His beloved Son. And releasing me from all legal responsibility to pay their penalty. But there's a second half of imputation. Not only my sins imputed to Christ. Turn again to 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is the second aspect. The imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. God made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So, in the same way that Christ, though He was not sinful Himself, receives the guilt of sin, so also the double blessing of justification is that while believer, or is that believers, while we are not actually righteous in ourselves, God reckons to us the full merits of the obedience of Christ. So that I'm not just considered innocent by God, but I am considered righteous. Positively righteous. Right? If, if we were just forgiven of our sins, that would be an incredible blessing on its own. If we could be restored to a state of innocency like Adam was in the garden, and suddenly I am no longer regarded as one who broke the law, that would be an incredible blessing. But I'd be innocent, but I wouldn't yet be righteous, would I? I wouldn't be one who deserves the reward 
yet. And that is what this second aspect of imputation is all about. Is that in Christ, we're not only restored from breakers of the law to innocency, we are then taken from innocency to righteous. As though we have obeyed the law as Christ has obeyed the law. And become an heir of eternal life like Christ has become an heir of eternal life. Listen to James uh, Usser. He says, For hereby we have both a deliverance from guilt and punishment of all our sins and being accounted righteous in the sight of God by the righteousness of Christ our Savior imputed to us, and we are restored to a better righteousness than ever we had in Adam. That brings us lastly to the fourth thing this morning. All of this that we've talked about, all of these blessings and benefits become mine by faith alone. They become mine by faith alone. Turn back to Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, Paul is telling us that the way a sinner receives this blessing, and indeed the only way he can receive this blessing, is to come to Christ with nothing but the empty hand of faith. And Paul uses Abraham as the example. Romans beginning in verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? And he quotes Genesis 15.6. Abraham believed God and it was accounted or imputed to him for righteousness. And so Paul is going to give us a divinely inspired commentary on what was going on in Genesis 15.6. And like any good theologian, he, gives it, he teaches us by way of contrast in the following verses. He presents to us two diverging, mutually exclusive paths by which one may seek to be justified. Verse 4. He says, Now to the one who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Okay? So pause there. Paul is describing here for us a, what we would call a works arrangement. An arrangement based upon services performed. Similar to the arrangement Adam was in with God uh, in, in the garden. Notice the language of debt and wages. Okay? I'll, give you, I'll give you an example. We've all, we all understand this from our worldly employment. When an employer and an employee enter into a contract, and the employer says to the employee, I will pay you $20 an hour for every hour you work, and you'll get paid every Friday. And the employee says, okay, sounds like a good arrangement. When Friday comes around and it's payday and you're the employee, you don't go up to your boss and say, hey boss, I was wondering if you could do me a favor. Do you think you could lend me some money out of your mercy and your abundant kindness? Right? And the employer also doesn't say to the employee, hey, you know what, I'm feeling really generous today and I want, to give, I want to gift you some money. Why don't people talk like that? 
Because your boss giving you your money isn't a matter of grace. It's a matter of justice. It's a matter of obligation of what is owed to you. Now, translate that into what Paul is saying regarding our relationship with God. What does it mean to approach God on the basis of works? Well, it is to approach God on, with that same attitude of God, because of the work I have done for you, you now, God, are my debtor. You now owe me eternal life because of what I am and have done. But my friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you need to understand God will be no man's debtor. Not to mention all of your supposed merits are like dung and filthy rags to God. And to approach God that way on the basis of I have worked for you and you now therefore owe me this, that is not only wrong, it is insulting to God. Because if justification can come through the law, like Paul says to the Galatians, you are saying to God that Christ came and lived and died in vain. And you're saying, no thank you, I don't need the gift of your Son, I can handle this quite fine on my own. By my own obedience to the law. And brothers and sisters, there are droves of people who think that they are Christians and they are approaching God exactly on that basis. On the basis of their merits. People who wear cross necklaces and they have the stickers on their cars. People who as as soon as you say to them, I'm a Christian, they say, me too. And yet, almost without exception, when you ask them, oh really? Why will you be saved? Why will you be saved? The first words out of their mouth draw attention not to Christ, but to themselves. And they begin to tell you all sorts of reasons why they're good enough to go to heaven. I'm generous. I care about people. I go out of my way. I'm patient. Whatever it might be. Christian, I hope when you hear that response come out of someone's mouth that you have alarm bells going off that that's the wrong answer. All of our best deeds are still stained with sin. Even as Christians. My best deeds need to be repented of. And then my repentance needs to be repented of. The right answer to why will you be saved is my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's the only right answer. If our answer starts with the, with the word I, we are still living in verse 4, working for God. We need to live in verse 5 and throw away all of our hopes in verse 4 and working to, for God and come with the empty hands of verse 5 here. He goes on. And to the one who does not work, okay? So the one who throws away his confidence in the attitude of verse 4 and making God his debtor, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. In other words, according to Paul, what's the opposite of working for God? It is believing and resting in the promise of the merciful God. 
Faith and trust are the only posture that exalt the grace of God and the merits of Christ. God is jealous to be glorified not as our debtor, but as our great and merciful benefactor. Here's how one commentator put it. The believing of which Paul speaks is a belief that creates no debt, that brings no plea, that makes no offer or bargain. It is the empty hand of faith. It hides no bribe, makes no effort at earning or coercing anything from God. It knows its bankruptcy and does not conceal it. That is what faith is. It is the coming to Christ saying, nothing in My hands I bring, but simply to Thy cross I cling. Faith is the letting go of all other confidences, all other hopes, all other trusts, throwing those away and coming to Christ realizing I am empty, I am undone, I cannot justify myself, and I therefore come to You simply to receive from Your abundance. And if you're here this morning and not a Christian, that is the posture with which you need to this day come to this merciful Christ. He stands ready to give to all sinners who come to Him the robes of His righteousness. And He will take from you all of your sins and He will give to you in their place the robes of His pure and spotless obedience and righteousness. And He will present you pure before the Father. I want to close this morning by addressing the children. So parents, give them that nudge they need to say, this is the time where you pay attention. Children, kids, I addressed you at the beginning. I want to address you at the end. Okay. You don't have to understand. Okay, Kids, I'm talking to you. You don't have to understand everything that mom and dad understand in order to be saved by God like mom and dad are saved by God. Okay? There are words that I've used this morning. There are things that I've said that probably make you kind of scratch your head. You're confused. Not sure you understand it all. That's okay. You, Lord willing, have time in which you can grow in your understanding as you get older. But I want you kids at your childlike level to understand what this is about so that you would, not just in the future, but now, trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, I want to give you an analogy. Picture heaven as a great, wonderful wedding that you've been invited to. God has invited you to the wedding feast. But in order to enter you have to have pure, spotless, white clothes. Okay? So that's the deal. You're invited to the wedding, but you have to have the garments that are white and pure and spotless. Now, picture yourself standing there at the entrance of heaven, and you're standing side by side with Jesus. And as you're standing there, you look down at your clothes that you're wearing, and you see that they are stained and they are dirty, and they are ripped, and they are torn. That is what your sin looks like to God. That's what my sin looks like to God. 
And as you look down at your torn and dirty and stained clothes, you become sad because you know, I can't go in with clothes like these. I can't go in wearing this. And then you look beside you and you look at Jesus and you see that His clothes are bright white. Just perfect. Not a wrinkle, not a spot, not a blemish. And suddenly Jesus says to you, He says, little child, if you try to... If, if you try... If you try to enter with the clothes you're wearing, my Father will turn you away. Because only those who are holy and righteous can go in. And you begin to get even sadder because that's what you thought. And Jesus has made it clear to you. But then Jesus says this to you. He says, but if you want, and if you believe My Word, I promise you that if you give to me your dirty and stained clothes, stained with sin, I will bury them so that you will never have to wear them again. And then you say to him, but what will I wear? I have to have white unstained garments to get into heaven. What will I wear if I give you my dirty garments? And Jesus says to you, you can wear mine. And you ask Jesus, but what will you wear? And Jesus says to you, don't worry, I have enough pure white garments to clothe as many sinners as desire to come to be clothed by Me. And you believe in Him. And you believe His Word. And suddenly you look down again and you see that the old dirty rags are gone and you are wearing the same clothes that Jesus is wearing. And they're just as bright as His. And He says to you, now, my child, you may enter heaven. Children, that is what Jesus is calling you to do. Right now, you don't have to wait till you get older. To believe in Him with all of your heart and to trust His promise to sinners. He's telling you, don't try to get to heaven wearing the sin that you have. But rather, believe His promise that He will take from you your sins and He will bury them. By His cross and by His burial, He has killed the sins of everyone who trusts Him. And He will give to you the robe of His own righteousness to wear so that you will be as pure and righteous in the sight of God as Jesus is. And so children, trust in Jesus. Come to Him with a simple, childlike faith. It doesn't matter if you don't understand all the big words. All you need to understand is you are a sinner. You cannot come to God the way you are, but Jesus will give me His righteousness. And so kids, Trust in the Lord Jesus. Trust Him. Let's pray. Father, what words of praise can we offer You? Holy Father, 
who has given Your beloved Son for sinners such as us to die the cruel death of the cross that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We praise You, our Father. We praise You from the depth of our heart and we look forward to heaven when we will from perfect hearts praise You. When we will sing the never-ending song of the love and grace that has been shown to us in Your Son. Father, we pray that we would cherish this doctrine. We pray that we would cherish Christ. That we would not just think about these things detached from Christ, but that we would remember that the reason justification is so glorious is because Christ is glorious. And because He is mine and all that is His is mine. Father, we pray for our children. We pray that they would trust Christ. We pray that You would grab a hold of their hearts while they are young. Teach them and convict them of sin and bring them by Your Spirit to the cross of Christ that they would flee from their own unrighteousness and that they would cling to the cross of Christ. Father, hear our prayers. Help us as parents to pray more faithfully for our children. Father, we pray for all others as well who don't know Christ. Unbelieving spouses. Unbelieving parents. Father, be merciful, we pray. Bring them into saving union with Christ. Give them faith that they may flee from the wrath to come. That they may be saved from the wrath of God that is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Father, go with us this Lord's Day, we pray. Bless our fellowship, our discussion. We pray that we would encourage one another as the church. Help us to take up our duties to be faithful to one another, to exhort one another, to encourage one another. We pray that You would be gracious to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. Jude closes out his letter with this doxology and benediction. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of the glory... Excuse me. Present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.